0: This time on Watchers of Tomorrow, to the last I grapple with thee, From hell's heart I stab at thee, For hate's sake I spit my last breath at thee!
1: I am Gepwin. I'm joined, as always, by my good friend Doctor Isix. Hi, and this is Watchers of Tomorrow, where we watch old sci-fi thingies or possibly ancient literature.
0: Yes, <laughs>
1: centuries old is what I'm referencing there. Hmm. I suppose people may be a little upset if I call it ancient literature.
0: <laughs> I know. Well, Star Trek calls you know calls anything like before the 2200s ancient so you know we get away with it right
1: yes the ancient west (laughs) those were always my favorite next-gen episodes (laughs) this week was actually probably my favorite episode so far
0: oh heck yeah i was gonna say that myself it's like all right so we got like a really kind of uh, episode previous you know there and we get to this one like this is like we're do we die and go to heaven what what happened here this is completely
1: different it was paced well there were mm-hmm. well-defined stakes there was an actual yes. kind of ticking clock that made some sort of sense internally mm-hmm. all the character interactions
0: were interesting yeah yeah
1: it's getting better it's getting Yay. better until next time but that's the end of the
0: episode <laughs> yeah that's what happens we got episodic uh you know you know shows like this and you got uh you know some folks that are uh, you know, pretty good at running it, you know, making episode and other folks that aren't so good. And then sometimes you get weird decisions that just don't work at all. And there's no one really there to sort of call it. And you're like, oh, what, what? <laughs> and then you get threshold. But anyway,
1: <laughs> so this week we watched the Doomsday Machine.
0: Yes. One of the more, uh, you know, well-known classic episodes of Star Trek, the original series, uh, It involves a giant space worm.
1: Yeah, that's kinder than my description. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this episode was written by norman spinard is an interesting name he won uh, <laughs> writing writing awards i don't think he wrote anything that anyone would necessarily recognize but his writing has won him a hugo and nebula award so he's a well-known good science fiction writer
0: excellent so i guess that maybe is uh, rubbing off in the situation here
1: yes we only have one kind of major guest star for this episode his name is william Windom, which is probably like the best actor name so far
0: that's uh alliteration and you know sort of like you, know, you think it's gonna be like william uh Windrop or something like that i don't know but it's windom like it's like wisdom except he's an actor he plays commodore matt decker
1: we also have another guest star who doesn't get a lot of stuff, but I figured I'd mention her just for completeness. They have Elizabeth Rogers as Lieutenant Palmer. Yeah, she exists.
0: She does exist. Because your Hura was like off this week.
1: Yeah, Hura took the day off for an unexplained. We just have a new communications officer for un, unknown reasons.
0: But, um, I, I, I would be remiss if I didn't mention that William Wyndham... Uh, has been in a, a number of different things throughout the years as a sort of character actor, sort of dealy, and m- most importantly, amongst all of those, he was in Sonic the Hedgehog in the cartoon. Yes, the <laughs> that's no good guy. Yes, uh, I think this is the, the 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 really good Sonic the Hedgehog from the early '90s, not the. Other one,
1: not like, the, the 80s <laughs> not the 80s don't let someone touch you in your swimsuit area sonic the hedgehog
0: yeah, the, the awkward one
1: <laughs> why is that just the, that is my only actual association with sonic the hedgehog because i never played any of the games growing up mm-hmm. so like i saw the uh, i saw the really bad cartoon and the really awkward cartoon where he like has a real human girlfriend for some reason
0: yeah that, that was So confusing.
1: It spawned an entire generation of furries. Oh, the Enterprise is responding to a distress signal that was not from Sonic the Hedgehog. (laughs) Be surprised if it was. (laughs) There's a transition. Did you like my transition? There we go. Yes. (laughs) I worked it in. The signal has come in somewhere from a sector of solar systems, but they can't pin down which one. The message was so badly garbled and blocked off that all they really got was the name of another starship called the Constellation. Hmm. For Star Trek trivia nerds, the Constellation is the namesake ship of this class of starship. Indeed,
0: uh, you know, usually, you know, when, uh, I recall, for our call, Star Trek, you know, tends to like name either the first or second ship in a line for a class. The name the, the, that particular line.
1: Well, it's a particular way of. Uh, I think it's actually something that the Navy does. It's a way of classifying ship classes. The first the first ship is the NX whatever is the experimental prototype. And then mm-hmm. the first ship that they actually produce for it is the name and then any ships that they make off that model of ship are named the whatever class. Very cool. So this would have been the first kind of this ship made and then the Enterprise was a later one was a constellation class ship. Whereas the constellation is just the first ship of that type of ship very cool which is just some so, random uh, naval trivia
0: so uh it's the enterprise's old uh older sister
1: yes the older sister ship yes <laughs> they should be arriving at system i370 but sulu
0: lost it oh sulu why'd you lose an entire star system
1: all that's here now is debris and asteroids
0: hmm. are, are you sure you were just not lost it's Alderon. yes <laughs> it's more apt than you think <laughs> Seven, seven whole planets have gone missing. The system's star is
1: still here, but yes, all that's left of any of the planets are random space rubble. They go on to explore the next system, which shared a similar fate, except that two planets remain, as well as a ship's broken distress call. They follow it and find the constellation damaged and drifting.
0: It looks like it's been a little bit of a fight. I, I wonder if it got in, Maybe the constellation's been going around blowing up planets.
1: Oh, that's an interesting theory. scotty kirk mccoy and a few other crewmen beam over aboard the constellation to explore the abandoned ship they find it to be a dead hulk in space with no one aboard except for the one command officer who they find slumped over a console
0: a derelict other than this commodore fellow
1: this is commodore decker who was the commanding officer of the ship because he was a commodore and i can't say captain which annoys me because it's just a very convenient word commanding officer is clunky
0: there's gonna be a captain decker later anyway so uh, you know i guess <laughs> yes. the, i guess we're, we're preemptively not confusing ourselves
1: decker awakes all confused and under Kirk's questioning he tries to explain what's going on but he's in a very very stunned afraid state and can't talk until mccoy gives him a sedative
0: so he's, he's too excited, too energetic, uh, what? He's in the TV version of Shock. Oh, yes, yes, yeah. That where you're, you're sort of, you're vibrating so quickly that you're, you're imperceptible, like you're not moving.
1: They finally sedate him into being able to talk and as well as pulling up some captain's logs that he made aboard the ship, they discover that they encountered a massive alien vessel, several kilometers long alien vessel that was attacking and carving up the planets in this solar system.
0: Hmm, that seems like it's a, you know, kind of a big deal if it's able to carve up planets, you know?
1: It critically endangered the ship, and Decker evacuated the crew to the third planet of the system, which now no longer exists. Whoops. Back on the Enterprise, Spock looks at some of the constellation's sensor logs and confirms Decker's account that the ship was attacked by a miles long alien robot, a self autonomous robot capable of dismantling planets and using them as fuel
0: Hmm. so it basically goes around uh, chops up planets eats them and then moves on and it just seems to be doing this perpetually one planet after another
1: he projects its path and finds that it probably came from outside of the galaxy this seems to happen a lot
0: terror from beyond the unknown and uh, remember, if you try to go through that, uh, you know, leave the galaxy, you run into that weird barrier that gives you psychic powers. So obviously, the only thing that can go through it is robots.
1: So was it weaker before, and then it went through this weird edge of space barrier thing
0: and got superpowered? Maybe that's why it's like eating entire planets, as opposed to like just going after a specific target. Hmm. It's like I'm so hungry now. I got, I got a, a, an extra death beam now, and that's it's craziness. I'm gonna just. We can consume everything. Also, if it continues on its current path, it will go through the most populated
1: part of our own galaxy.
0: Uh-oh, that seems like a bad thing.
1: Yes, the doomsday weapon thing is moving through population centers.
0: So uh, we got to save the people. Kirk explains
1: to McCoy the concept of old Earth doomsday machines like the old H-bombs, which were a weapon so powerful it could have destroyed both sides of a conflict, but that prevented anyone from using them.
0: Yeah, we've talked about virtually, uh, mutually assured destruction before.
1: This is a slightly different concept, but very, very yes. similar. Also, apparently, nuclear weapons just don't exist anymore in this time period because he's all confused by them, which means well, that some of their nuclear deproliferation treaties must have worked.
0: Hooray! Or maybe when uh, the Earth you know, in Star Trek universe had World War III, they just uh, ran out of uranium, just entirely. <laughs> well, this is, just, this is a
1: random aside, but I was just rewatching some ds9 and had the the little green men episode oh yeah <laughs> and they expressed such confusion that nuclear uh fuse nuclear fission would be like happening
0: on a planet yes they're like wait that's a thing you guys do here like out in the open holy crap we're gonna die yeah <laughs> No
1: one does nuclear fission inside of an atmosphere.
0: <laughs> just asking for trouble.
1: <laughs> Kirk sends McCoy back to the Enterprise to take care of Decker while he and Scotty get the Constellation's engines back up and running. But as soon as McCoy and Decker return to the ship, the planet killer begins to pursue the Enterprise. Oh no! It's on to us. They are able to outrun it for the moment, but it is gaining on them. Kirk wants them to stop it from leaving the solar system, but Spock reports that it's simply just too strong for their ability to damage it. Made to have neutronium or something. Yes, neutronium or some made-up thing.
0: Oh, I-, I could talk about that later. If
1: like. <laughs> <laughs> the energy that the ship is generating seems to be attracting the planet killer. So, you know, running away is sort of working. It's going to...
0: At least pull it away from the Constellation so Kirk can survive a little bit longer.
1: They decide to try to beam Kirk back aboard, but as soon as they lower their defensive screens, the Planet Killer fires on them and conveniently destroys the transporter and the communications. Whoops. Kirk and Scotty are now trapped on the Constellation with no ability to communicate. Now trapped, Scotty begins working more so on repairing the impulse engines so that they can get part of the ships to work again.
0: At least, uh, you know, Scotty's over there to actually, like, pull off all the miracles. Because you know, once again, he is the most competent member of the crew. They have
1: one competent crew member on board in the survival situation, so I guess it's
0: going to work out. Yes, <laughs> of course, the Enterprise is screwed now, but you know.
1: Back on the Enterprise, they have escaped the planet killer, but it is now headed towards a colony on Rigel. As far as I'm aware, Rigel is in danger a lot. It seems to be their go-to random colony name.
0: So, uh, you know, the uh, you know, it's it's a big star. It's you know, kind of a uh, recognizable name. It's like this is something that, you know you. For in space somewhere right so all that you know just sort of puts it all together easily in the mind spock wants to effect
1: repairs on the ship collect the captain and then warn rigel and starfleet about this new super dangerous threat however decker has gone full ahab there's reason
0: i referenced that in the uh, in the opening
1: <laughs> after failing to bully sulu into flying the ship straight at the planet killer he uses some you know starfleet regulation mumbo jumbo to release spock of command and take command of the enterprise himself ordering it to attack the suicidal planet killer thing
0: so let's go um do exactly what we did before that didn't work and attack the thing. <laughs> Kirk and co
1: are continuing to affect repairs in the constellation. Meanwhile, Scotty does some techno-pabble about how they need to cross-link the warp controls and the impulse engine controls in order to get the ship to work. It really doesn't m- matter.
0: Yeah, it's uh, basically uh, you know it's like well we're gonna we have have this, but we just put it on this other thing, and that'll make it work, right? But it's gonna cause some trouble, and you gotta be careful, and there might be some shaky camera later.
1: Yeah, it basically is explaining that there's going to be shaky cam and they're gonna have to run around like the ship is on fire or something.
0: Yes.
1: (laughs) The Enterprise is taking a beating from the planet killer, but Decker orders to maintain an attack against all recommendations from Spock and any other members of the crew. Kirk finally gets the view screen working on the constellation and is able to see that the Enterprise is being attacked by the planet killer. And he goes, why is my ship making a suicide attack?
0: Good question. Hmm. Maybe we should call them up. Oh, wait.
1: The Enterprise gets caught in a tractor beam and is dragged slowly towards the interior, large, fiery mouth of the planet killer.
0: I don't know. It's trying to eat the
1: Enterprise. I hope it's tasty at least. Scotty finally gets the Constellation engines working just in time. They fly it towards the planet killer, Kirk lamenting that he does not have the phasers to shoot on the thing. And Scotty says, oh, you want phasers? I got your phasers.
0: (laughs) let's power it up baby
1: kirk tells him that he earned his pay for the week which suggests all kinds of weird things about the economy of this (laughs) this place
0: wait does that mean i don't have to do anything else the rest of this episode because i got paid already sweet
1: also they get paid weekly and there's just a lot of stuff to unpack there (laughs) Uh,
0: i'm I'm going to just interpret that as there is a just a saying that they use the future
1: Yeah, that seems more likely. The Constellation fires on the Planet Killer, which distracts it and allows the Enterprise to break free. The Enterprise also fires on the Planet Killer, and the two-pronged attack confuses it enough for both ships to get clear.
0: It's a little bit of a tag-team action here. Kirk contacts the Enterprise and
1: is surprised to hear that Decker has assumed command, and when Decker orders that the Enterprise attack again, Kirk goes, "Uh uh-uh. No, remove him from command. You know, stop this madness. Zacker complains about regulations, but Spock also knows the regulations and has some thing about, like, if you attack this, it will look like suicide. And trying to commit suicide, will let me remove you from command. So QED.
0: So, you know, there's a bit of banter, uh, I think it was earlier, about uh, Spock also quoting re- uh, regulations to, to, the, to this very same effect. But, you know, it's like, well... I, you know, the doctor would need to have done your medical examination. Corey's like, well, I'm going to declare him anyway. I'm like, oh, but, but you haven't actually done the examination. Spock has some security
1: escort Decker out to get examined by the doctor, I guess. Mm-hmm. And then brings the Enterprise back to pick up Kirk. Decker attacks his escort and runs off to the shuttle bay flying off to continue his attack via shuttlecraft.
0: I'm going to use everything I can. Uh, this is this, this a shuttlecraft or a rowboat if you got one. Spock orders him back, but
1: Decker announces that since they can't fire through the ship's armor, he's going to ram the shuttle down its throat. Despite Kirk's pleas for him to stop, he flies the ship straight into the planet killer and explodes.
0: Well, it's nice knowing you, Decker. Um, I'll, uh, I'll take good care of your son when I see him in a, in a future movie. The disturbingness of the
1: transcript of this episode. Just, the transcript says, Dengar flies the ship into the planet killer, parentheses, dies horribly.
0: Yeah, uh, I guess, you know, uh, but you, I, I think that to a certain degree, his death was probably instantaneous.
1: You would think so, though he does go, ah. So you know he died. I thought
0: that was more, more, you know, like more, more like he was freaking out because he's like, "Oh gosh, I'm, I'm doing something monumentally suicidal here," and last moment you know know, realization.
1: Zulu reports that this attack did create a small drop of the power output from the planet killer, possibly minimally damaging. Interesting. This gives Kirk a bright idea. Light
0: bulb time.
1: He tells Spock to hold off beaming him back aboard. Kirk has Scotty nice. hook up a self-destruct to the constellation, essentially turning it into a fusion bomb with 97 megatons of power.
0: Oh, but was it 97 Gepwin, or was it a much more exact number?
1: It's 97 point mer-mer-mer-mer-mer <laughs> Vulcan things.
0: Yes. Spock like explicitly like corrects him, and it's like it's 97, close enough. <laughs> Once he
1: activates the device, he has 30 seconds to beam off the ship before he dies in a fiery explosion.
0: Yeah, just like Decker.
1: You know, horribly. Scotty beams aboard the Enterprise, which breaks the transporter again.
0: Dang it, Scotty. Oh, at, least you, at least you're at least you on the Enterprise who you can fix this problem. And why are they, you know, linking up the, uh, you, know, you know, the transporter and everything else, you know, together like this in a weird way that just breaks constantly?
1: This is why when you get to the Enterprise D, they have five different transporters.
0: <laughs> like, yeah, If one's broken, we just go to a different one. (laughs) This
1: is very bad timing because Kirk has already started his attack, and now Scotty has about 30 seconds to effect repairs. Hope you're a miracle worker, Scotty. Oh, wait, you are. There's much tension and reading off of numbers as Kirk gets closer and closer to the planet killer, when Scotty finally getting his work done in the Jeffries tube.
0: A few seconds left, and you you start trying to beam him. And did it work? Gepwin, did it work? Did they save Kirk? They beam
1: Kirk aboard, and he dies horribly, have to deal with him anymore. Okay.
0: Okay. Wait, wait, wait a moment.
1: <laughs> <laughs> they beam Kirk aboard with seconds to spare. The constellation explodes, dealing a critical blow to the planet killer and ending this galactic threat.
0: Yes, uh, it, it's it, you've destroyed all its hit points and the the planet killer is uh, going to just harmlessly through space and never be uh, uh worried about again. Yeah, they did just leave it
1: there. Seems like there's some future mad scientisting opportunities that they did not explore fully.
0: Note to self: write an episode of Star Trek where someone does that. Kirk muses that
1: this, ironically, may be the only time that someone used a H bomb for good.
0: So I guess they never uh, figured out how to to mine the moon with with hydrogen you know you know, hydrogen, uh, you know you know bombs like that, and then it ends up knocking out of orbit and killing everyone in a moment. Wasn't that the plot of the time machine or something? Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Soak raises the possibility that
1: there may be more of the planet killers out there, and Kirk says, well, I hope not. One was quite sufficient.
0: You no, know, I, I, though Now at this point, they do kind of have a means to fight them. It's, it just requires them to blow up ships or out where they stored all the, the the nukes so
1: that's why i thought this was a pretty crummy ending joke because i was expecting to like <laughs> well i hope not we're gonna run out of starships
0: as long as they we have more starships than there are planet killers out there we're probably okay
1: <laughs> i did think that this was a particularly interesting episode it was much more explicitly political than a lot of the other ones indeed full-on stated Did you know that nuclear weapons are bad?
0: These are these things that are basically designed to just, you know, kill massive amounts of people and things and, you know, massive devastation. And that can, you know, just a, uh, you know, a a selective, you know, application of them over a large territory can basically make a large portion of the earth just uninhabitable for a very, very, very long time. This was,
1: of course, filmed during the Cold War Mm -hmm. when... I was going to say New York and Russia. That doesn't make any sense. When the United States and Russia... (laughs)
0: Live from New York is the Cold War.
1: (laughs) The United States and Russia were in a nuclear standoff. Both of them ready to just destroy the other at any provocation. American nuclear weapon testing peaked actually in 1962. I just found out from an interesting chart I happened upon. So, a few years before this. Uh, at the same time as the Cuban Missile Crisis, also in 1962, which was kind of this dawning realization moment for a lot of people in the United States of like, oh, this actually could turn in to a full-blown nuclear conflict.
0: And and maybe that would be a bad thing. Yeah, maybe. Hmm. How about we, I don't know, not all die? How about you, one? Do you want to, us not all to die?
1: Yeah, probably good. <laughs> I did some research on these, uh, like mutually assured destruction and uh and doomsday style things uh doomsday weapons were never actually technically set up during the cold war there was sort of a prevailing theory um during the time that that you could theoretically kind of hook a lot of nuclear weapons underneath the surface of the planet you could connect a bunch of hydrogen bombs to a computer system that was set to detonate them if it detected a sufficiently large attack. And then the fallout from that would basically destroy the whole world, and you'd have your, like, you know, fails... They they called it a fail-deadly system.
0: So, you know, if we can't have the world, no one can, sort of thing.
1: Yeah, that kind of thing. So Russia did have their missiles set up in this fail-deadly configuration, where in the case of an attack, they would all automatically fire on the United States.
0: Wasn't some of that, like, set up, like, on a phone line... That if it, like, stopped giving the signal, it would, it would uh, trip all these systems automatically. And so you just, and so it was kind of very much a, if this one wire gets cut accidentally by somebody, we're all dead sort of situation.
1: Yeah, so I hope they had a big sign. It's like, no digging. Yes. <laughs>
0: Do not touch
1: this. It's very important. Jemmy, you just tripped over the end the world wire.
0: Well, I hope it didn't get unplugged from the other side. Uh-oh.
1: That's kind of set setup. I was reading a few things about the mutually assured destruction concept and it was very interesting like i i really did a lot of digging and i thought like oh this episode deals explicitly with the politics of the cold war there's going to be some stuff to dig into every single philosophical argument i found was like did you know that doomsday weapons and mutually assured destruction were bad
0: ideas oh yeah <laughs> it's uh you know the the, the the i guess the only people that really defend it are are, are those that are uh you know posing it as just having the threat of it will you know prevents us from en- uh, engaging in a conflict similar to world war 2 whereas a total war where you know you know there is going to be massive devastation just more on a more personal level uh and you know by having the threat of it there you know will prevent that and hopefully actually using them but there's still the possibility that they could be used and by having that threat even you know you know possible uh it means that the if, if anyone just sort of screws up ac- even accidentally you can result in massive death without any real point to it
1: well the particularly interesting thing that i found when i was researching the mutually assured destruction concept was they all of the arguments either for or against basically start with you have to accept that this is an inherently logically flawed concept so you cannot discuss it logically it is an emotional oh. argument <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and the basic thing, the the most normal thing that they uh had for this was just this is obviously logically flawed because suicide bombers are a thing.
0: <laughs> cause you know, you know, some if you believe in your cause uh strong enough and you know, if the material world of the living doesn't necessarily matter uh, as greatly as your idea that you're you're trying to fight for, then yeah you're you're like, oh yeah, sure I'll'll set off nukes, destroy myself and everybody I know uh, because I'm in the right and thus I you know this makes total sense to me. It doesn't even have to be that
1: complicated like if you if you have someone or in this case, I guess it would be kind of a country standoff thing, but if you get backed into enough of a corner where your only option is to destroy yourself, you're gonna do it. Because mm-hmm. it's your only option. And when two countries are trying to back each other into exactly that corner while at the same time espousing a doctrine of mutually assured destruction, I see some contradictions here.
0: Well, uh, yeah. <laughs> We're going to basically force each other to be in the exact situation we don't want to be in. Hooray! <laughs> or as or as I said previously, whoops. <laughs> kind of interesting
1: concept, though, is that, that by moving this into... The realm of science fiction off planet they've ceased this being a doomsday device
0: well i guess in some ways it's sort of the i guess uh, secondary repercussions uh so you know you let's say we're, we, we turn to this you know earth example here of the modern day you know uh, you know you know us russia china everybody starts tossing their nukes around uh what happens to uruguay
1: I mean, they probably get nuclear fallouted as well.
0: Exactly. And, and, and to, to a certain degree, this doomsday machine is kind of an uh, analogy for the fallout for you know, the greater conflict. You know, leftovers that are very hel- highly deadly and you know can wipe out entire populations that have no connection to the conflict at all.
1: And they're just spreading everywhere, yeah. So it's more of a, it's more of a kind of don't use your weapons badly argument. Because the, like if, they, if you take this thing at face value as a like, you know, planet-destroying weapon, you would imagine that it was created in some sort of interplanetary conflict. Because why else would you need something that can operate in space like this? Which means it's designed to go destroy the other guy's planet which makes it not a doomsday weapon.
0: Unless it also wiped out the pe- first people's planet because you can not want to control yeah, it. Yeah,
1: right? I mean, you can't know, but that's more of an issue of they didn't know how to control it than it's a doomsday mutual assured destruction sort of thing. But that brings us to the uh, philosophy of automated weapon systems.
0: Gunshots by computer.
1: Which I was getting to. Which uh, <laughs> So so I found this lecture by uh, Oliver Thorne, who's the guy who does uh, Philosophy Tube. Mm-hmm. And he did a full lecture on on the automated uh, weapon systems in warfare, which was very interesting because he basically uh, made a very good argument for the concept itself being so flawed as not really being worthy of discussion. Hmm. Because the basic idea is that uh, your, your kind of autonomous idea is basically just sort of a smokescreen To remove the ideas of responsibility from the people who are actually making the decisions for something that would be autonomous—that's
0: a a a a filter a you know I don't have to think about this directly anymore sort of thing I'm still you know you know in the end responsible though it you know I can claim it's now the responsibility of the system.
1: The general idea would be yeah that you you think of something as autonomous meaning it can make decisions on its own which also is is kind of the difference between the autonomous and the automated, because automated is more of a straight input-output decision-making, whereas autonomous would be you're able to make decisions based on a list of options for given situations. He was making this argument, which I think I do agree with the logic there, that there's no such thing as autonomous, because all of the decisions that it makes were just predetermined instead of being, like, actually judgment calls. Uh,
0: a, a priori uh, sort of knowledge going on here, where you design the system to make these kind of decisions, and, you know, the decisions that you want it to make will be filtered into that in that system. It's just sort of like, well, I'm, you know, if, if you were to be doing this yourself and setting up the system to basically emulate, emulate you, you are, in effect, doing the same decisions, except it's just now... You're not consciously thinking about it directly. You let the system do it all, all for you.
1: Well, you've already made the decisions. You made the decisions yeah. ages ago when you programmed the thing.
0: Exactly, yeah.
1: This this particular thing that we're dealing with here seems to be automated because they keep talking about how like, you know, they fire on it and it changes to attack one ship, and then before it can attack the one ship, they fire on it again, it changes to attack the other ship. So it has some fundamental automation flaws that they're taking advantage of
0: is a primitive AI.
1: The people who designed this thing bear a lot of responsibility for programming it to go off and, you know, dismantle planets.
0: And sort of, you know, to a certain degree, you know, beg some questions about what their motivations were. If they're just supposed to wipe out all planets, you know, is this a species that does, doesn't like planets for some reason? Does it want to prevent, uh, you know, potential enemies or adversaries from having uh, footholds that or to make use of planets? And, you know, sort of build a universe where there is only one planet in the universe. And that's the uh, creators for this device, perhaps.
1: I do think that this concept was actually done better in an episode of Voyager. They don't go into any particular, like, reasoning or backstory or how this thing is supposed to function in this episode. They had a very similar concept in a Voyager episode where they, they find this Cardassian missile.
0: Oh, yeah, the the, the warhead thing. Yeah. The, yeah. the automated system. And uh, that it like, reprogrammed, right?
1: Yeah, they reprogrammed it ages ago to attack a Cardassian settlement or something. And it went rogue, missed, wound up in, you know, the completely wrong part of the galaxy. And the problem that they have in that one is that it has found a planet that is similar enough that it believes it to be its target.
0: So it's going to go head over there and exploderate.
1: And that's a much more realistic problem than... You designed something so badly that you just let it loose and decided it could eat whatever planets it found regardless.
0: Sort of flaw in the logic is why I'm sort of like, all right, maybe there's something that we're just not understanding about its creators, you know, because otherwise, yeah, some of this doesn't make a lot of sense.
1: Yeah, maybe it was created by an actual doomsday cult.
0: Oh, yeah. (laughs) We'll destroy all the planets because that's how we want to be.
1: But it came from outside the galaxy, so maybe it already ate another galaxy.
0: We are the last galaxy that it's visited, uh, you know, and, and you know all other uni- you know p- parts of the universe are now dead and you know, empty forever because all the planets are gone.
1: Well, it doesn't matter. <laughs> I do think it's interesting though. It's a bit of a side note that they keep having stuff come in from outside the galaxy because I guess they they really weren't as on some of the sciency stuff at this phase of Star Trek but by the time you get to uh by the time you get to like next gen they they've accepted that the galaxy our galaxy itself is too big to explore fully so this one they keep having to bring stuff from outside the galaxy to make it sound all spacey for some reason though i don't understand that because at this point we hadn't even visited the freaking moon
0: yep <laughs> The space is big but it's not that big right you know if you leave the solar system it's only like a few days to the next star right uh, not quite I feel
1: like they're going off of some sort of lovecraftian thing like something we can't understand from beyond the bounds of our own reality
0: oh, i think that might be a you know a good way to interpret it you know the uh, beyond the galaxy as far as what we've seen so far is very much a uh, a condition of uh you know the this is this is the boundary of what is known, this is what's boundary of what acceptable and we can interact with and go visit and we can go if you know, this but you know, because this thing came from beyond that boundary, uh, we're unable to divine the the motivations, the wants of the people that created it. Because they are, you know, just gonna be so far removed that any attempt to push out out to that uh, distance in order to find out these answers is going to, you know, well uh Know, be beyond our capabilities anytime that they bring in something
1: from outside of the galaxy it's just so that it can be undefeatable by kirk
0: eh, to a certain degree, a degree. <laughs> but then again you know it takes uh you know uh, kirk can be uh beat down god gods of supermen so uh you know this is just a different sort of variation on a theme there
1: <laughs> yeah once he's beaten up three gods you kind of run into a writing problem
0: <laughs> it's like well We need something powerful that's give you a challenge. What what's left?
1: (laughs) Which actually gets to this kind of interesting thing that I was thinking about with this episode and how original series is handling its politics because they've they've had several episodes where they had a fairly anti-war, anti-cold war theme. Uh, It it was very much the politics of the time, and the show does seem to be at least a little bit progressive on that side of things, of criticizing. The Cold War.
0: It's like, you know, this this thing could get us all killed. Can we just not? But they have a particular problem because
1: Next Gen did a lot of that stuff too. They had a lot of war criticisms and mm-hmm. conflict criticisms in Next Gen. But Next Gen solved most of its episodes through politics and talking. Yeah. Whereas Original Series solves all of its episodes by blowing something up.
0: by exploding
1: so you're, you're mixing a war is not the answer, this doomsday weapon is like endangering us all and, and should not have been made or is too dangerous to exist, but the thing that will save us is violence.
0: Yes. <laughs> war is not the answer, but violence is. <laughs> well, what's the difference?
1: <laughs> it kind of gets a mixed message here that even at the end he's joking about it. It's like, well, hey, this thing's like an old style H-bomb. Hint, hint. Hint, H-bombs. They hint, destroy the planet. Hint. Also, we can defeat H-bombs by blowing them up with H-bombs.
0: So, we should, but if someone starts lobbing missiles at us, we just fire our own missiles? Oh, wait a moment. Hmm. it seems like it's going to lead to everybody being dead. Maybe Star Trek was wrong on that. Huh. Well, too late now. We have, like, uh, three minutes before uh, the first impact, so... Uh, uh uh, hold on to your butts everybody (laughs) so
1: overall yeah it's a weird i guess it's just a time thing because this this is a very action sci-fi-y show whereas later iterations of star trek would be much
0: more drama focused Uh, and in fact uh, one of the things i liked about this particular episode was that there was you know some drama going on uh with you know decker trying to you know hold control and all that uh and you know everyone's like no really you're gonna get us all killed please stop (laughs) Well, it is one
1: of the only times that we've been given a rival approach. Yes. Because it's always been Kirk makes the decision, Kirk is right, Kirk wins. You never even particularly have that middle you know, the midpoint episode arc where they try something and it turns out to be raw. He just hasn't made his de- his correct decision until the end of the episode.
0: He's going to think about it for a little bit longer, and that's the middle of the episode. Yeah. Or alternatively, he goes, hangs out with somebody and there's some, some romance or something, I don't know.
1: <laughs> so giving him a sort of foil that is another commander who is going to have a fundamentally different approach of I'm just going to, you know, throw, throw myself at this thing until it dies and making Kirk the weirdly more reasonable character, which is not something <laughs> we would expect from Kirk.
0: You know, uh, we we have a, a long list of things that, you know, that are kind of head scratches when it comes to Kirk. And him just being either like overly amazing or just kind of pulling stuff out of his ass to motivate the plot. I'm going to be like responsible about this situation and not get everyone killed. That
1: is kind of the only overarching character thing that we've gotten from Kirk so far. And we had it exemplified here in a positive way instead of the weirdly offbeat negative way that it's been in the rest of the series. Because Decker has a fundamental disregard for the safety of his ship and crew in service of we need to all sacrifice ourselves in order to you know destroy this thing whereas kirk's stated goal always has been the safety of his ship and crew above all else
0: and uh, uh, to a certain degree decker you know could also be argued that he had a similar motivation at one point but he's failed at that because his crew is now all dead yeah and so it's like well you know, I'm a failure as a, you know, a Commodore, I guess. Uh, and, but I can still, I can still make their deaths worth something, right? By finally defeating this thing. And, oh, well, it's going to get all these other people killed, but we're pa- well past that. It's going to keep murdering anyway, right?
1: Yeah, it's a weirdly interesting that it, it, it ties in with some stuff that I've just been randomly talking about with some people this week from other things. About the idea of having to give meaning to. To fundamentally damaging situations, Mm -hmm. so he lost his crew, he lost his command. He like he made a decision that got his crew all killed, which is you know about five hundred people, as we learn from the complement of these ships. And so now he has to try to do something to give that meaning; otherwise, it is more kind of fundamentally damaging. To himself
0: and uh, you know consequences be damned this is now his motivation
1: which is something that keeps that comes up a lot there's in fact a um i wasn't prepared for this so i don't have the name in my notes but there's a fairly well-known book that is written by a uh he was a I believe he was a psychologist who was also a holocaust survivor and mm-hmm. he had a lot of writings about the necessity of meaning in horrible situations and being able to kind of give yourself or, you know, the the people in the in those horrible German camps would like discuss these things with each other and like, hold on to like he had a manuscript. This apparently was like his the work he was doing before the you know before the Nazis took over and he continued like working on it throughout and had this idea of I'm going to get through this so that I can publish my my, you know, psychological book here. And giving having that kind of meaning is what allowed people to get through that situation, which you would expect to just kind of mentally destroy people.
0: It helps you sort of focus to a certain degree. So, and, uh, you know, and not let the, the horrors going on around you sink in so much that you're unable to you know, uh, you know, uh, maintain even yourself.
1: well, we don't even have a particular way to discuss this right now because we don't know if that's if just like see, that would just make it a distraction, and that's not the same kind of thing because you can try to distract yourself from being in a bad situation, but often that doesn't really work. Yeah. It's just this this idea that we we talk about it a lot, but we don't seem to have a very good way of dealing with it in our current way of psychological thinking, which is you you have to have meaning. For negative situations otherwise they just turn into psychological suffering
0: we already discussed uh, you know uh, you know the the, you know, the nature of suffering and things like that uh, plenty of times previous on our show here yes but but don't you know that suffering is good in its own right uh, <sighs>
1: <laughs> yeah I've been hearing those arguments this week too <clears throat> oh I just found like I don't know I was just randomly going falling down my my good old uh, Marxist YouTube video hole this week on youtube Chattons. and <laughs> found this very interesting thing that like a lot of the defenses of laissez-faire capitalism as it relates to the suffering of individuals was just a uh, propagation of racist ideas that were used as like this will this, the like fundamental suffering will strengthen people as a whole and you'll know, kill off the weak <sighs>
0: It's not how the world works, people. Come on.
1: <laughs> Which, interestingly, is where the phrase survival of the fittest comes from, I just learned. It was not a Darwinist idea. It was a you know, racial uh, science idea. Oh, so a little later. It might have been slightly yeah. earlier. This was like someone ahead of the curve. I'm blanking on the no. name right now because this is not... this. These discussions always go somewhere that I didn't expect, so I don't have the notes down.
0: If you if you need uh, you know, a few moments to think about things, I could talk about Neutronium for a little bit. <laughs> <away.
1: laughs> yes, Neutronium. They had <laughs> Neutronium and... Neura something the beams that the thing was made of were were something else
0: yeah I, I, I forget what the, uh, the the beam was noted down as uh and it's probably somewhere in my notes but i'm not seeing it right now but uh, neutronium uh so you know believe it or not there is you know you know conceivably something in the real world that is called neutronium and what, what what the question is what the heck is that it's basically a material of a atomic Uh, number zero so in in uh, physics and chemistry atomic number usually refers to the number of protons involved in an atom so this would be a atom that lacks any protons and to if it's just a single uh, neutron that's just a single neutron you don't really consider an atom and uh, you know it'll decay radioactively and you know disperse and all that things Uh, and generally that would be also be the case for any sort of uh, clumps of these things uh, you know, in in any quantity. So if you had, say, thirty neutrons all stuck together, it would, you know, very likely to you know decay radioactively. The problem is when you get something, say, like a, a neutron star, where basically everything's been turned into you know, neutrons, and so the the uh, you know gravitational pressure is actually preventing it from uh, 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 decaying like that. And so you get a you know what's called uh, you know degenerate uh, 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 neutronium. Where you got you know all these uh, neutrons that are being sort of maintained in their current status and squeezed together and it's uh, you know, it's pretty wild stuff, but it's also kind of ridiculous to think that you could turn that into material of a spaceship yeah, well if I, <laughs> if I'm remembering my
1: nuclear physics correctly, which I may not because I failed chemistry rather badly, neutrons do not have a electrical charge. That's the whole point Uh, of neutrons.
0: Yeah, the uh, the the individual quarks that make up neutrons do, but they're kind of all bound together, so it doesn't really matter. It'd only be a a very minor effect if you were like inside the neutron itself. But also,
1: the interaction between electrical charges is what lets atoms interact with other atoms, and is that thing that people keep talking about of why. If, you know, solid objects are made up of mostly empty space on the atomic level, things can't just pass through each other.
0: You are very correct. So if you were to, say, have a spaceship made out of neutronium and it was somehow uh, managed to be stable and, you know, not just exploding under its own uh, radioactive, uh, you know, uh, decoupling of itself, uh, then you would have a situation where you have a material that does not interact with electromagnetism, like, at all. So you couldn't really see it. Um, and that would be very prone to just kind of sinking into other matter. So you
1: basically have created an armored spacecraft that could not physically interact with other material,
0: at least not without causing problems. Yeah, you know, there there is limits to this because you are going to run into you know have you know you know, you know the, the the nuclei getting close to each other uh, at some point. But until you you know you know do that, you're going to be basically. Uh, piercing right through the electron clouds and you can you know do all sorts of you know crazy sort of i'm trying to look at the right term it's it's sort of like if you had if you're Shooting two clouds of gas at each other, you're gonna get some messed up stuff at the end, <laughs> and and neither neither surface is going to be quite what it was before. And in fact, you know, you can maybe if if you have, do have some way to sort of extract one from the other, it's it's gonna be there's gonna be some damage on both sides. We'll just say that. So it's going to be very interesting physical interaction if something were to make contact with this neutronium uh exterior of this of the space vessel and it has also begs some questions of how is it able to even attach to more you know or more uh traditional matter uh, internally if there is any such stuff inside in does the first it
1: place. i suppose the only thing that we don't know is what on earth a phaser is in the first place so maybe it is blocked Neutron. by neutrons
0: <laughs> some sort of other sort of energy um yeah so so, uh, so, yeah, but yeah, if the phaser is primarily electromagnetic in nature, then yeah, this, you know, they should have just been able to go right through it. So, so maybe uh, oh. that's,
1: it's not being blocked. You just can't affect the ship with it because it just phases right through the thing.
0: Shot right through it. Well, is it destroyed? No, it, it's completely undamaged. Wait a moment. <laughs> <laughs>
1: There's also another question that they don't. It's given that this entire episode is about random rogue weapons. Mm-hmm. Why do they... The, do phasers have like a? Do they? Do they burn out after a bit? Because they miss. They yeah. sometimes miss with the phasers. So does it like? But like, they they would have to either decay after a certain length of time, or they're gonna hit something.
0: One of my favorite events in um, in uh, Stellaris is when uh, your your science ship gets hit by hits by um, uh, stray uh, uh, mass driver routes.
1: <laughs> so that's a. Uh, Mass Effect reference, then. Ah! <laughs> so there's a very good just kind of side event in the Mass Effect games where you hear people training. So they are talking about the first law of motion. Yeah, you know, what is the first law of motion? An object in motion will stay in motion until acted upon by another force. Like yes, so when you fire this gun, you are ruining someone's day. Be it five minutes from now, five years from now, or five thousand years from now, you are going to hit something. <laughs> this might take a while. <laughs> so lock in your firing position.
0: <laughs> Try not to miss. Going back to phasers specifically, um, you know the, you know, there in, 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 in physics, if you were to shoot, say, a laser. Uh, out into space Uh, for a very very long time it would continue on out there you know and you know not very well uh, disrupted or anything like that Um, but because there is going because no one has a perfect laser there is at some point going to be some spreading so the intensity will uh, slowly decrease there's also things like interacting with interstellar gases and so there's going to be some scattering from that now on the lar- even larger scale, you're going to have interactions with gravitational fields, uh, even larger scales, you're going to have interactions with the expansion of the universe itself. And your, your, your nice, you know, collimated laser uh, is going to be uh, slowly dispersed and, you know, may not nearly as deadly over, over a long distance. So once the thing starts heading
1: outside of the galactic cluster, you're pretty good because it's not going to catch up with anything. Yeah, pretty much.
0: <laughs> so you're not going to be doomsday weaponing somebody else's galaxy.
1: So I guess we can say that this doomsday weapon may have come from outside of the galaxy, but it probably came from a relatively close by galaxy inside of our <laughs> same godlier cluster.
0: <laughs> Perhaps.
1: As <laughs> traveling outside of your galactic cluster should be like, theoretically impossible
0: there's sort of one of those uh, thing you know you know uh, things in uh, you know physics was like okay if you start accelerating a spacecraft now towards Andromeda when does it reach Andromeda it kind of doesn't
1: <laughs> if two galaxies leave the train station at the same time <laughs> <laughs>
0: when do they collide <laughs> depends on their trajectory
1: <laughs> I feel like we straight enough we could probably justify moving to a uh, end to the end of the episode at this point nice
0: <laughs> so uh, so maybe some awards
1: yes i think that it's time for the galaxy's favorite game show <laughs> <Woo>! <laughs>
0: Hey, everybody, we've toiled up the points and we are ready to uh, hand out the awards to the fine contestants today. I actually got four awards here. I surprised Gepwin by having a fourth one, and I only told him about three. Ooh. So let's see if he's uh, ready to, you know, you know, with an extra prize for this one here. Our first award is the Ahab Award, which goes to Commodore Decker for being all eager to destroy the Doomsday Machine at the expense of everything, including much people that he just met, but, you know, he probably should be less of a jerk about it. When did he win, Gepwin? Decker wins a nuclear harpoon, newest weapon
1: technology for space whaling.
0: Hmm, excellent. I think he'll be able to get his white whale this time. Our second award is the Fine Print Award, which goes to Spock for his excellent recall of regulations regarding mad commanding officers. Poor good and ill. What does he win, Geppwin? Spock receives the excellent First Officers Award as detailed for this situation by
1: paragraph 5, subsection 23, line 16 of the regulations and whatever's of Starfleet.
0: Hmm. I hope that involves a fancy hat. Our third award is the giant enemy crab award, which goes to the Doomsday Machine itself because you gotta attack its weak point for massive damage. What does it win, gap? The
1: Doomsday Machine wins like every video game cliche because it literally had a big red glowing weak point.
0: Attack its weak point, man. You know, Star Fox, where are you? <laughs> Our final award is the Gunshots by Computer Award, which also goes to the Doomsday Machine. What does it win this time? It win the illusion of autonomy, which
1: separates out responsibility from its long-distance creators, even though they made the decisions that caused this mess in the first place.
0: Yes, screw those guys and their murderous ways. So, thank you very much, Geplin, and, uh, Hopefully, next time we'll have more awards and more good times for everybody.
1: As yes, thank you for joining us, and I hope you will have had fun on this, the Galaxy's Favorite Game Show! Woo. Oh, I've got to. I'm just going to be completely honest with this because I keep trying to maintain. The illusion of continuity here. Continuity? But I did decide to work ahead because we're recording this episode a little later in the week than normal. Mm-hmm. So I have, in fact, just watched the next episode called Cat's Paw. It does involve kitties? Oh, it does. Hmm. It does involve kitties.
0: Sweet. I like cats. They're friendly.
1: <laughs> yes, it does. It it surprisingly actually involves
0: cats. <laughs> i i've not seen this one i don't remember it all so. okay
1: yeah this actually was one of the ones that i did remember from when i was a kid i just thought like i remembered the ending because the ending is fairly like iconic sci-fi this is a very kind of iconic 60s sci-fi ending of the oh my god what a twist kind of thing
0: Yep. Uh, <laughs> i
1: i thought i misremembered some of the other stuff because it just gets so weird
0: so you're saying is I'm probably going to have a good time with this one? Oh,
1: you because are! Because it is so weird. <laughs> it is so weird, and there are cats.
0: Excellent. Weirdness and cats. I think I'm set.
1: <laughs> so yeah, this is going to be a very, very strange one. I hope you all have fun with it. Um, this this one I'd kind of recommend people do watch because the synopsis is not going to be able to do it justice. Look, well, you can find out how well we do with cats. Next week on
0: Watchers of Tomorrow. Next time on Watchers of Tomorrow, it was all just a dream. A dream of death. You have been listening to Watchers of Tomorrow, a podcast on science fiction media. Find and follow Watchers of Tomorrow on Podbean, YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, podcast spreader digital podcast and perhaps many more to come if you enjoy our podcast make sure to subscribe for more and where possible make sure to rate your experience or leave us a review you may find gepwin on youtube.com gepwin and twitter at gepwin you may find me dr isix on youtube.com dr and twitter at isixlp. Music is Waveform and Morris Principle, both by D-R-K-R-N. You can also check out the Watchers of Tomorrow Discord channel. Make sure to share the experience with your friends, family, enemies, and alien overlords. If you feel you are suffering from Transporter Syndrome, please be aware that the next time you step off the Transporter, that you, that is now, no longer exists.